climate denial, while it's still present, is shrinking rapidly. And so that's mm -hmm. that's a positive. Um, at the same time, as people grapple with what's going on with climate change, there is a sense of, oh, my goodness, this pro problem is so overwhelming that it's easy to become fatalistic. And uh, I, I kind of refuse to live the tragedy of the commons um, and I'm trying to get as many other people to get on board with that as possible. And to the extent that Terra Nostra can help be a catalyst for getting more and more people um, to recognize that yes, yes, they can step up. And yes, when enough of us do that, it will make a difference. Um, that That is where we need to be now is, is moving not, not into just acceptance, but I wanna move people from acceptance give some space for climate grief because that's real. And then, all right, let's roll up our sleeves and do something. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, I'm speaking with the creators of Terra Nostra, a multimedia artistic creation to raise awareness about climate change. Susan Lubetkin is an environmental statistician who studies Arctic and climate issues and has been a member of the Lake Union Civic Orchestra since 1995. Welcome, Susan. Hi, Ronit. Lovely to be here. Thanks for being here. And my other guest is Christophe Chignard, a composer, conductor, musicologist, and guitarist. Welcome, Christophe. Thank you. Hello, Ronit. Hello, thank you for being here. So I'm interested uh, in in this relationship you have in that you are a conductor and a musicologist, Christoph, who has grown very familiar with climate change and science through this project. And Susan, you are a scientist who plays the cello, who's gotten more immersed in music with this project. Is that accurate? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. So when you set out to make this project, what was your overarching goal, Susan? I just had this flash of insight one day. And when I hit 40, and maybe you'll relate to this, I <laughs> stopped censoring myself quite as much and started trying to let ideas that I would have shut down when I was a little bit younger have some room to breathe. And I had this epiphany and inspiration about a climate change symphony. And before I could shut it down, I wrote this truly nutso email to Christophe <laughs> and, and proposed this idea to him for a climate change symphony. He, he ran with it. And, and, after, and after I sent Christophe the email, I forwarded it to my husband and said, uh, just so you know, <laughs> we may be off on a grand <laughs> adventure and I probably should have talked to you first. But um, he's been incredibly supportive of the whole thing. So um, thank God for, for fabulous husbands. And that was in 2013? That, that was right? 2013. Yeah, a long time ago now, actually. <laughs> it feels um, like forever ago. Doesn't it? I can't believe it. Um, and then, Christophe, were you game for this project right away, or how was your, what was your reaction? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was uh, an extraordinary opportunity because I, I felt very passionate about climate change and any environmental issues since I was a teenager, essentially. And, and my, my parents were very uh, proactive uh, in the 70s already. 
And I was very inspired by that. So we've been always very uh, aware of our environment and, and the need to take care of it back in the 70s, so imagine. And so it's very much rooted in my culture. And um, when Susan asked me to write a, a, a symphony about climate change, essentially, I was thrilled because it was a way for me to bring my passion for the environment with my uh, skills as a composer to certainly have an opportunity to bring together that passion of mine with my uh, skills uh, as a musician was extraordinary. So I absolutely said yes instantly and, and poured every resource and knowledge I had owned over 30 years into the project. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so from the moment of that email and accepting the, the project, how many months did it take for the very first of the composition to to be ready? So about an, a year, I would say. I spent I spent a lot of time researching for the piece uh, because it's, it was such an unusual subject matter that it, it took a lot of, of planning. Mm -hmm. So I spent about four months planning, I would say, and then I started to compose and it, and it took me about eight months mm -hmm. uh, on and off. You know, I have other things uh, that I'm doing, but yeah, uh, very steadily. and. Um, I was able to deliver the piece uh, at the beginning of uh, 2015. Mm -hmm. When you envisioned the orchestra, when you en envisioned this symphony, did you always know that there would be footage running with it? No, not at all. It was very important for me to, to create a piece that would stand alone, meaning that that would not need any external dimension such as visuals in order to tell the story that was mm -hmm. really critical and i worked very hard to to have a piece that expresses visually emotionally everything that i had to share uh, mm -hmm. it's only uh, after the piece was uh, finished uh, we decided uh, on the world premiere performance with the orchestra and uh, the venue that we picked uh, happened to have a huge screen and I thought, oh, my goodness, what an opportunity. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about full movie theater screen, right? Mm, wow. And I thought, wow, it'd be, it'd be really a lost opportunity not to take advantage of this. So mm -hmm. let's, let's add some visuals. And, you know, I, I did that in, in, a, in a very amateur uh, way. I mean, I'm not a director by any stretch. Uh, so mm -hmm. what I did is I, I collected the images and then I put them together as a film and creating you no know, panning and zooming and in order for this to uh, to be as as evocative uh, as possible and uh, we So that. you you did that yourself for the first yeah. performance? Yes. Yes. That's a lot of work. I know yes. how much work that is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But the more I did it and the more captivating it became because of course climate change is extremely visual. But the visuals mm -hmm. to answer your original question uh, were not they came uh, later, and they were really intended to, to be a one-time uh, mm -hmm. idea uh, for the uh, premiere. And then, of course, since then, I uh, did some revisions of the piece. The piece was strong, but I, I knew I could make it even stronger. So I revised the piece, about 30% of it. I did some music, a new introduction, a new ending, because, of course, how do you end a piece like this? Very challenging. And that became you know, Terra Nostra, uh, 2.0 uh, revised in 2019 and uh, then we raised about $60,000 and uh, did a professional recording of it 
And uh, that became absolutely the expression of my vision without compromise. It's an incredible mm -hmm. recording. So the recording was so strong that we thought, well, we need a real film. So we hired a, a video company based in Seattle. And here again, gave them mm -hmm. a lot of latitude. I mean, of course, they had the original version with the original film as guidelines. But essentially, we, we told them, okay, here is the new soundtrack. Although I, mm -hmm. I hate to call it a soundtrack. Mm -hmm. It's not a soundtrack, really. Here is the new, the new recording. Come up with a film. And they did. I was kind of bookmarking some parts of the symphony that I wanted to perhaps play. Um, so are there parts that you specifically would like to call attention to or have played? Christoph already knows what I'm going to say. So there's here. a place that always, uh, well, two, two spots that uh, have always uh, seemed to have touched a nerve with Susan. Two. One is uh, the drought and uh, fire section. It's based on, uh, on the pulse that mm -hmm. feels quite ineluctable, you know, unstoppable. And there's a big build-up uh, that's quite emotional. And the other spot is the, an idea that she came up with, which was to have a uh, musical rendering of S.O.S. Oh, hold on. Back up. That's not quite right. <laughs> you had the idea of doing an S.O.S. I just came up with how to do it rhythmically. So, so, right, right. so yeah, how did you I mean. talk about that process a little bit? So, so what you're going to hear in this recording is the second version of the score. And so the original version we played uh, with the Lake Union Civic Orchestra in June of 2015 had a, had a different way that, that the ending was written. And one of really important part of that ending was this sort of alarm bell that was going off um, that was supposed to be this... Um, insistent sort of fire drill sound that just repeated. And when we were looking at, at revisions to all of this, um, one of the things that Christoph had an idea about was, well, we should do an SOS. But then he said, I don't, I, I, he, he was, he was sort of struggling with how to approach that. And I sort of glibly threw out the idea of doing it in Morse code. Mm. And he said, well, wait a minute, how would you do that? And I never, ever, ever write music. That's one of the reasons I re reached out to Christoph for this project in the mm -hmm. first place. And I, you know, sat there for a second and tried to figure out how I would write out rhythmically, you know, a Morse code SOS. So three short, mm -hmm. three long and three short. And uh, he took it and ran with it. And it, to me, it is one of the most emotional parts of the music with the way that he put it into the coda. So I'll let him talk about how, how he did that. Okay. But, um, 
to hear how it was used both in the score and in the film um, kind of breaks me in a positive way every time. Oh, wow. Yeah. So please go ahead, Christoph. Yeah. So the, so the SOS motive appears near the end of the piece in the brass. So it's, it's, uh, it's hard to miss because mm. it's huge. So as, as she mentioned, it's a, a succession of repeated notes, essentially. And that motive appears repeatedly, but each uh, occurrence is coming earlier and earlier. So there is a, a sense of, of urgency to that moment. So the, like I'm, I, I keep uh, repeating the SOS motive and, and each, each occurrence comes uh, at a shorter interval until it reaches a huge uh, climax and then uh, goes into uh, the, the closing section, which is all about hope. Yes. leading to that, right? I mean, the, an SOS is a call to be doing something. Yes. And that was that was the part that, that really um, was transitional and important for me when he put that in there is, all right, we all need to be stepping up to be saving things. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, SOS is not meant to, to mean we are doomed. It's meant to uh, come and rescue us. <laughs> You know, that is such an interesting distinction. And I think it really does bear, you know, mentioning like it's it's easy to take for granted the the term SOS or the SOS call. But when you think about it in, in this context, especially, it's vital for the understanding to be that it's a call to help and action can still be taken. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's, very, it's a very, very proactive message. I mean, mm -hmm. in, in fact, in te technical terms, you know, you get an SOS on the on the sea and and if you're a ship nearby you have to go you know, mm. that's that's even that's even the maritime law and i'm interested in in this idea of um when you create a project like this or when when you're sending a message and trying to convey something about an issue that is so dire and can be really overwhelming in some ways there's this idea i think of not having people lose hope i think there's a balance a balance that has to be struck. And so I'm curious about the tension between uh, delivering the information and the severity of the situation, but also leaving enough window in there uh, for some light to come in uh, for the listener and for people. So was that a difficult balance to strike? Yes. In fact, the first version of the piece as composed in uh, 2015 uh, had an ending that felt bleak if not somewhat hopeless mm. uh, it was very hard for me to to finish the piece because i i, don't, I didn't want to you know a hollywood ending i didn't want to appear to be uh, you know more optimistic than i really felt 
but I didn't want it to be doomsday either. So it was very hard to gauge. And I came up with a sort of big question mark. It was a bit ambiguous. I think it was too ambiguous for uh, for Susan. And so uh, I let her comment. But essentially, uh, uh, she asked me to rewrite the ending with something that was more uh, positive and, and encouraging, I would say. And and one of the goals that that I have in this and that I that that started the whole thing is to really drive everybody to moving forward on doing what they can, and that will matter. Um, and it it matters for a couple of reasons. One, there are a lot of us who got us into this situation, and it's taken 150 years for us to put the Earth in this situation. So. The time frame of building the problem mm-hmm. is long, and that also means that the time frame of fixing the problem is going to be long. And I, you know, that's an important mm-hmm. piece to keep in mind. So our individual actions will matter over time. But the other thing that happens is that when people make their own actions and beliefs line up with this and making changes in their own personal lives, they can bring that expectation to other people around them and to the people who are in charge of making policies that will be more effective at, at, at making large scale change. And if you can show that, yes, I'm willing to make mm-hmm. this commitment and you ask it of others and you ask it of people who are in power, that has a huge effect. There was an interesting thing I just read. I, I'm a Guardian subscriber and there was a study mm-hmm. of, okay, the, the sort of the effect in neighborhoods of if one person puts on solar panels, then everybody else in the neighborhood starts to do it as well. And it's just that first little bit of activation energy that really kicks people into mm-hmm. doing something and it can grow. Mm-hmm. Well, you think about Seattle, we, we are all in Seattle, Washington, and we have a pretty strong, I would say a pretty healthy relationship with compost and, you know, recycling and and being a little bit more of a steward of where we live. But many places are not like that. And it is, I notice it very much when I'm traveling and I just think about the enormity of the task at hand and how many people are not even taking simple steps to reduce. And it's it's a little overwhelming sometimes. Well, one of the things that, that pops up is, and if they will, and people say, what steps do you want everyone to take? And the answer that I have mm-hmm. had is that I actually can't, in many ways, give any individual an answer because I don't know what they're already doing. And I also sort of find that as soon as I throw the word should into a sentence, whether it's to a kid, particularly mine, or an adult, you know, the defensiveness and the pushback comes right back, comes comes up immediately. And so I yeah. don't want to have any sentence with should in it labeled. Mm-hmm. What I would like to do is say, here are some places where you can evaluate what's practical for you and what you're already doing and figuring out and then figure out from there what your best approach is, where you can have the most impact that is doable in your life. If we're all just facing the same direction and moving the same way, that will make a huge impact. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my kids all wear hand-me-downs and that includes the oldest ones because they get stuff from their friends. You know, we've got solar on our house in Seattle and everybody knows it always rains in Seattle. We've got the electric mm-hmm. car. We're moving down. We're not vegan yet, but we're, you know, moving down <laughs> on 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 how we're making those choices. Um, as addicted as we all are to Amazon, particularly right now, I'm trying to be very mm-hmm. conscious about what I buy and how it's packaged. You no know, food waste, all the yes. rest of it. There are so many things we can think about. 
Um, and so there are lots of ways that people can enter into this problem in their personal lives in ways mm -hmm. that hopefully fit and don't gut all the fun and positive out of out of their lives or make it too impractical to be workable. Yeah. And I feel like maybe the, the idea of this symphony and creating music and visuals is sort of, I mean, when you conceived of it, was it to get around that whole pedantic argument about climate change? Was it to try to appeal to the senses before anything else? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, the the idea came to me, and if you ever have seen Working Girl, Melanie Griffith at one point yeah, is explaining course. how she came up with her idea for something <laughs> that got stolen. <laughs> um, and so my Melanie Griffith moment was I was uh, sitting, I, I did a postdoc in oceanography at the University of Washington, and there was a, a lunchtime seminar every week. Um, and everybody talked about the research that they were doing and where it was going. And every single conversation would start from what the original research goals were. But every presentation ended with, and this is what we're seeing with climate change. Mm -hmm. And the feeling in that room every lunchtime, every Tuesday was, we all see this, but other people aren't hearing it yet. And it was the choir talking to the choir. Um, <laughs> and at the same time that that was going on, I was you know, doing music with Christoph because I played in, in, in Lake Union Civic Orchestra, which is the, the orchestra that he conducts and that I play mm -hmm. the cello in and have for many, many years. And he's, he's, I, we've played some of his compositions and I just had this, this inspiration that hold on, you know, graphs and P values and talking about degrees Celsius change over decades is the wrong way to do this. We need to get to exploring this through emotion and music. And mm -hmm. that's when I sent off that totally crazy email to Christoph. And <laughs> luckily, luckily he didn't blow me off. Well, right, and 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 thank goodness for all of us. Um, so when you when you composed this and you started rehearsing it with the musicians, what kind of reaction did you have from them, Christoph? Like, how was it received, especially knowing what the story of the work was? It was it was difficult because it's it's a uh, it's not an easy piece to play. Uh, it has a very complex architecture uh, that tries to precisely uh, do justice to the scope uh, and the magnitude of the of the problem we are uh, tackling so mm -hmm. at first uh, there were a lot of you know, raised eyebrows and musicians didn't quite know what to make of this uh, because they were lacking um, perspective for, for the big picture and it literally mm -hmm. took you know two months of rehearsing once a week and the performance for finally, Musicians <laughs> go, ah, okay, we get it. And, and to understand why things were put together as they were. Mm -hmm. So it, it was a very, very long process. Uh, it, it wasn't like, you know, love at first sight at all. There were, mm. It was mostly skepticism because it was unusual. Uh, it's an it's a mm -hmm. unusual piece. But what was very, very cool was that when we raised the funds in 2018, to do the professional recording of the new score. We had many, many people in the orchestra step up and support it um, in really solid and concrete ways. We did a Kickstarter campaign that, you know, we got over the wire by, you know, just a nose. And it, it was orchestra people who were in that group of 200 supporters who helped carry us over the line. Mm. So, um, you know, it, 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 it wasn't initially an easy piece to wrap your head around, but 
they rose to the occasion. Mm-hmm. And um, both in the performance and then when we were carrying it forward and, and the professional recording is jaw dropping. I mean, it is just such, such a cool piece um, the way that it is now. So I'm really excited to be able to share that. And, and the orchestra, yeah, Luco stepped up. Mm-hmm. And so five years ago, really pretty much was the premiere. So how do you feel now? It's, you know, 2020. And you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, during these times and these times being a pandemic has basically broken out across the world. Um, we're, we're recording this in, in late March of 2020. So we will be a month later when this, when this airs, but how do you feel about the project, the, the, the way you've changed? And this is for both of you now, uh, you know, five years later. Yeah. You know, as, as a, a creator, the relationship you have with with your creation is is ambiguous because um, you you're very very close to it obviously for the the creative period uh, and then you share it with the world and then it's really no longer yours and most often you move on and and you don't really want to deal with it anymore and this has been the case with my music not that i i i had regrets or or thought differently about what i had written i, I never regretted a single note I've, I've composed in my career but you just move on because uh, that's what uh, creative people do uh but that's a bit different with um, terra nostra because it's a piece that carries a message that is as pressing as ever so it, it stays mm-hmm. with me, you know, every day. And I, I found the piece very enduring uh, because the narrative is relevant. Mm-hmm. It, it, it tells a story that needs to be repeated again and again and again. You know, the humans have a short, shorter attention span and, and we are very focused on, on the dimensions of our existence, which is, of course, uh, tiny. Um, and I feel like Terra Nostra has reached a level of maturity that uh, is now un- uncompromising and unapologetic, and mm-hmm. that is is absolutely ready for prime time. I mean, the piece is rock solid. It's absolutely the best I can do. It's played beautifully. The recording is fantastic. It sounds great. It's played well. The film is is wonderful. I mean, it has absolutely everything that we wanted it to to have in order to convey that message. So it, it's very very enduring, mm-hmm. and and it is time now for us to share it on a, on a large scale. So this is what we we're working on. So it's been a very long process, but I think it took those five years to to bring it to a fruition and to a, yes. a level of of artistry, uh, emotion and uh, intellectual substance that uh, we had envisioned from day one. And how about you, Susan? How are you feeling about how you've changed or how the world has changed since since it first premiered? Well, I think climate denial, while it's still present, is shrinking rapidly. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's a positive. Um, at the same time, as people grapple with what's going on with climate change, there is a sense of, oh my goodness, this problem is so overwhelming that it's easy to become fatalistic. And I 
kind of refuse to live the tragedy of the commons and I'm trying to get as many other people to get on board with that as possible. And to the extent that Terra Nostra can help be a catalyst for getting more and more people to recognize that yes, yes, they can step up. And yes, when enough of us do that, it will make a difference. That That is where we need to be now is, is moving not, not into just acceptance, but I wanna move people from acceptance, give some space for climate grief because that's real. And then, all right, let's roll up our sleeves and do something. Um, and so that's mm-hmm. that's where I am on this. And I, I think um, particularly with the the revised ending of the piece, that's really pointing that direction. The end of the piece is this beautiful, but you know, admittedly fragile hope that that we can mm. learn how to do better, and that we can come up with a sustainable way of of moving forward um, and more harmoniously. So uh, that's where I see it, it going. So the, the transformation of the piece itself and is, is in line with how the world itself has changed its perceptions um, of climate change over the last five years. And I'm, I'm delighted that there has been that change in perception. And now we need to move mm-hmm. take the next step. You know, a friend of mine and I were talking about Earth Day because we attended um, the Earth Day about gosh, was it 20 years ago or maybe longer? I can't even remember. I'm so old. But we we attended, you know, many years ago together just out of high school. And so that must be longer than I'm imagining. But um, we were talking about Earth Day and we were talking about organizing and we were talking about what this, you know, coronavirus pandemic has done to the world and to business and corporations and just the government and thinking. And she felt optimistic that people would be able to take this example of what we've done to change our behavior for this, the stopping of this you know, virus spread and use those same resources and commitment to make changes for climate change. Do you see that at all? I'm hopeful. <laughs> it's the 8 billion... The eight billion human question. Yeah, <laughs> what what the global response to COVID nineteen has shown is that we can be taught and we can change our behavior when we mm-hmm. need to. That's that's a it's a very pressing question with that one, right? With immediate, you can see someone has gotten sick, or we you know we're able to steer around what's happening mm-hmm. with hospitals in crisis. The subtlety and the slowness of climate change make it much, much harder for people to wrap their heads around. And so, and, and the slowness and and the lag that we're going to have to deal with in the, in the way that our actions are going to affect things and the, the vigilance and the time frame we're going to have to make those changes are make, make it a daunting problem. And so I would like, COVID-19 is showing, yes, we can make changes, but that it's also hard for us to assist, hard for us to sustain those changes. Um, without thinking very, very hard about what all the indirect effects are. Mm-hmm. Um, I am absolutely aware of how hard mm-hmm. our most vulnerable communities are being hit, both by the virus and by the economic downturn. And there's that terrible coupling of all of those things. I, I think that, that the, the answer will be yes, but at one condition, is that when it's all over, if we can draw an unequivocal parallel between the way we mm-hmm. we are treating the planet right, by and large linked directly 
to what happened. People mm-hmm. people take very you know, things from the scale of how did that impact me and my job and my family? And so if they feel like, wow, our behavior as a species had a direct impact on me, I've lost my job, I, I got sick, or whatever consequences. If people can feel that suddenly our handling of climate change or lack of thereof uh, has had a direct impact on people's individual lives, then yes, then absolutely yes. Then people might suddenly say, wow, you know, this is not a theory anymore. Not only is it true, but it affected me as an individual. That's the only way people, people act is when they feel touched directly. Otherwise, it, it, otherwise, it's a theory. This is why it's so slow moving. This is why we, we, it's very hard to, to, to make progress. And this is exactly why we decided to act with what we know. So where is Terra Nostra on its journey right now? Where can people watch and listen to this piece? Yes, so I, would, I would say first, Terra Nostra is free. We don't have anything to sell. So that's very, very important. It is free and it is accessible. Mm-hmm. Very soon, the film will be as accessible. So the, so we are, uh, the, the, the website is being revised and it's actually ready. Mm-hmm. And so uh, www.terranostra.org. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we should mention that Terra Nostra means our earth. Mm-hmm. And our should be used, of course, in quotes because it's not ours, but this is the, the point of using the title. Yes, it's our earth, but it's not. And in it, you can listen to the new recording, which is posted on, Sound, on SoundCloud. Mm-hmm. So you can just click on listen, and you can listen to the entire piece. And then the website has, has lots of information about how the whole project started, the Q&A, uh, feedback from people who have listened, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very... Um, uh, uh, detailed and comprehensive and then soon uh, we will have the film available on youtube i would say when i say soon i mean probably in the fall Mm -hmm. and what's your dream what's your what would be your ultimate you checked all the boxes and this accomplished everything you wanted it to accomplish in terms of its availability and its uh, visibility, what what is your ultimate goal and dream for this project, both of you? Well, I would say that for the for the film to become ubiquitous, for some people to 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 watch it and then share it with friends, and and essentially, you know, I don't want to use that expression right now, but good go viral. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's there's got to be another expression, but. Uh, go worldwide, but yeah. So again, as I said, we have nothing to sell. You know, it's it's all accessible, it's all for free. But for people to watch in and say, "Wow, you know, this is really uh, something that I feel my friend, family should watch." So I'm going to send it uh, over and over, and for that to multiply and and for it to become a, a catalyst about uh, climate change that that is easy to uh, to access, that is uh, easy to understand, uh, easy to uh, react emotionally to. Uh, regardless of of anything. And what about you, Susan? Would you like to add anything to that? I just would like to amplify a little bit of that. I agree with everything that Christophe said, but I really want people to um, 
understand that as much as all of us, I mean, if you're not a tree, <laughs> you're part of the problem, right? So all of us are, but all of us are also part of the solution. And taking that and, and moving forward with it and, and being part of the hope is um, a, a big deal to me. That's what I would really like to see is that sitting with those emotions and then having that compel, help compel people to act. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, through the website, being able to direct people to what kind of actions they can take and to, to research and, and, you know, kick the tires on the science. I am a scientist. So yes, if you have questions of why did you show, you know, this image here, or, you know, there have always been hurricanes. What do you mean this hurricane is different? That kind of stuff. Yes, please ask those questions. Um, I think that's an important part of the dialogue and then follow up with, all right, now what? Mm -hmm. um, and I think we all need to get to that now what and start acting there. Mm -hmm. Do you envision this playing in schools or in music classes or just in science classes too? We would both love that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We, 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 have, we have some film in schools mm -hmm. already, mm -hmm. in about uh, what, uh, half a dozen schools, and, and the reaction has been fantastic. Mm -hmm. I mean, kids have been captivated. Uh, they've asked lots of questions. We've had a lot of feedback like, oh, I had no idea. I want to I show that to my parents. So here again, it was also designed to be accessible to children. That is super important. Yes. And, you know, it, it's not, uh, not PG-13. I mean, there's nothing, nothing really shocking and, and that would be uh, inappropriate for children at all mm -hmm. you know, in the field. So age-wise, it's, it's very accessible. So yes, to answer your, your question, absolutely. And we have experimented all the way from... Uh, middle school to university. Well, I have to, you know, I haven't chimed in yet. I do find the visuals stunning and uh, the piece moving. And I remember one one part, They many parts stand out for me, but as an animal lover, the um, pastoral scene of the deer and then the lamb, you mm. know, there are a couple of lambs there. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, that beauty. And it's, I just knew something terrible was about to happen and it was it was the train you know the yeah. the industrialization You know, it is really uh, historical and it's, you know, I, I see so much potential for students to even try to figure out um, what eras you're, you're referencing. You know, it's very interesting because you really do see the history of the earth and man or rather humankind in the piece. And it's, uh, it is moving and it's also unsettling and um, it is a call to action. Thank you for, for sharing this project with with me and and with my listeners and and for creating it uh, i know that listeners can find you at your website so thank you christophe and thank you susan for being here with me today thank you ronit and thank you for your interest and, and what you just said that's great it's been an absolute pleasure i always like talking with you ronit oh <laughs> i do too well thank you so much 
Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.